Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. What is skepticism? Should we be skeptical? How do we deal with our own cognitive dissonance? Can veganism ever be justified purely by reason? These are just some of the questions that Alex O'Connor, also known as the Cosmic Skeptic, has been grappling with on his YouTube channel, viewed by over 40 million people in the last few years. In this episode, I sit down with Alex O'Connor to discuss his positions on skepticism, David Hume, veganism, Peter Singer, and religion. Alex O'Connor is a prolific philosopher, YouTuber, public speaker, and animal welfare activist. His YouTube channel has amassed over 450,000 subscribers and discusses issues relating to free speech, free will, animal rights, and the philosophical arguments against religion. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. It's now time to welcome Alex O'Connor, to philosophy for our times. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so you have a YouTube channel. Its name is Cosmic Skeptic. Where did the name come from, and what does skepticism mean to you? Well, I used to make videos under my own name, Alex O'Connor. Unfortunately, it's just a little clunky of a title. There, there's a, a rather well-known indie singer-songwriter called Rex Orange County whose real name is Alex O'Connor, that's his legal name, and he recently did an interview where he was asked, why do you, un- why do you go by the name Rex Orange County? And he said, well, because, you know, Alex O'Connor, it's such a, such a terrible name, you can never style yourself with that, you never sell any records, and uh, multiple people sent it to me, and I, 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 they thought I'd be angry, but I was like, this is exactly why I had to come up with the pseudonym. Um, I'd, I'd seen someone that... I knew who was making music uh, and, and using the word cosmic in their, in their title, and I just thought it was a kind of a cool word while I was looking for a YouTube name. And there was, a, there was already a broad community of YouTubers who were using this skeptic, you know, addendum, something skeptic. And so it kind of came naturally after that. But for a time, I considered being cosmic critic, which is, it's, it's horrid. It makes me kind of want to throw up in my mouth when I think about how close I came to calling the channel that. But it's, it's a weird name. I, I, I don't much like having a username as my sort of business title and my, my, the, how I'm introduced in talks and, and stuff like this. William Lane Craig, a wonderful uh, philosopher of religion who I was very lucky to have on my podcast, I only learned after the fact that he nearly turned me down because my name was Cosmic Skeptic, because he thought that I was some kind of global skeptic, uh, a a skeptic about truth, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of a skeptic of cosmic proportions, uh, which is an understandable inference for him to make, but this is what I'm saying, it kind of puts people off, but kind of came out of there. The the skeptic, 
idea is generally used more colloquially on the online space. Skepticism in philosophy is often defined quite specifically. Mm -hmm. There are different kinds of skepticism, and it generally implies a kind of questioning spirit towards the axioms that we use to build our worldviews and our inability to epistemically justify a lot of those axioms, and so we can't know that they're true, and this is skepticism, the kind of project that Descartes famously partook in. Uh, Colloquially, it generally means something more like questioning your beliefs at the surface level, digging a bit deeper than usual to see if they can, see if they really resonate with your fundamental principles, and that's the kind of skepticism that I guess I was promoting when I started the channel. You mentioned that there's this kind of online YouTube community that has skeptic kind of connotations on it in its uh, presentation. And there's often a kind of um, affinity with like right-wing politics with those channels. Is skepticism of this kind of colloquial kind, as you said, somehow kind of inherently connected to more conservative views? Well, there seem to have been generations of atheist YouTube, let's say. And the, the skeptic community it's often thought of as kind of the same thing as the atheist community. And, and now it, it kind of is. A lot of the more modern skeptics and people who you would include in the skeptic community aren't just the people who call themselves something skeptic. It's a bit broader than that. These days, I, I've, I think it's actually the opposite. I think at least the atheist community that, that I've been kind of put in the group of, naturally, the kind of people that I, I consider my colleagues, are much more left-wing than right-wing. But a sort of YouTube generation ago, maybe sort of just shy of a decade ago or so, you had the kind of people who were doing the kind of things that we're doing here, which is making critical response videos to religious content. And you're quite right that a lot of the older generation of YouTube skeptics ended up on the right. One of the reasons for this might be that a lot of the popular right-wing discourse on YouTube consisted in the same kind of style of attack or style of polemic, which Mm. is taking broad worldviews that are being put forward, taking ideology, and just poking holes. And it's it's an easy enough thing to do. It's it's much easier than presenting your own worldview. You take a worldview that exists, and you just say, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that. I don't think that follows. And uh, people think you're very smart for doing it, because you're finding very clever ways to, to not so much poke the holes, but show where the holes exist. Uh, and it's easier to do that as a reactionary, of course. It, it's, it's reaction by trade. And so if we ask why these like channels that focused on reacting to ideological videos in the kind of religious field ended up becoming reactionaries, well, I mean, it's almost a tautology. It seems fairly natural to me. Uh, more and more now, when people try to make skeptical content, I certainly try to do this myself. I, I, I try to avoid doing that kind of content so much anymore. These days, we're making, well, at least I'm trying to make podcasts. I'm giving talks. I'm making broad videos where I put forward my own views as a totality, which I think <laughs> stops me from the temptation of, of getting into that field. I think one of the other reasons is that a lot of the time, people who are doing religious criticism online, certainly the, the older generation of YouTube atheist people, they probably fell into it through argument. It wasn't a love of philosophy or a love of philosophy of religion, but a love of argument in general, and they found that the religious debate is a really fun one. So they they make a video being like, wow, the Bible isn't 100% accurate because we have evolutionary science. And people think, wow, that was really entertaining. And so they subscribe, and they think, I'd better talk about this. And so they get known for talking about this kind of stuff. And then somebody asks them how they ground their ethical worldview. And they think, 
oh, well, I, I don't know, because I'm not a philosopher. I, I, this isn't how I got into it. And so they think, well, I better have something to say. So they start kind of trying, and it doesn't really work. And they, think, they basically like run out of places to go. So it's like, well, what can I do now? Well, I'm, I'm not a philosopher. I'm a reactionary. And where's the best place to be a reactionary at the moment? It's in the online conservative space. So they naturally tend towards it, I think. That's very interesting, because it seems like it has absolutely nothing to do with the content of the beliefs that they have, because a lot of these channels were originally from people in North America, where obviously the right is more associated with religion and kind of you know beliefs and God and so on. But it sounds like these people just wanted to critique for critique's sake. It wasn't really about what the content of the critique was. Yeah, I think it's about the notion of ideology. If you look at traditional left-wing criticism, liberal criticism, you had a kind of uh, state ideology, nationalistic ideology that the liberal left was poking holes in. You know, this was the, the, natural, the natural approach. They were the, the reactors. There seems to have been a switch in the way that the, the dialect is understood now that the ideologues are now the leftists and it's the, the right wing that is poking holes in the ideology rather than it being the other way around. And so maybe that might explain why we have this strange shift from religious criticism being a left-wing thing to being a right-wing thing, because maybe it's actually just about poking hole in ideology in general. And that's something that seems to have switched from the right to the left. And so it would make sense that these, these people do as well. It's, it's the kind of person who, as you say, is not interested in the content, but in the argument for argument's sake, which is fine. It's a hobby for some people. Like, if you're interested in having debate, you can join a debate club, and they'll give you the motion 10 minutes before you give the speech, and the fun is trying to defend the position for the sake of defending it. But if that's what you're into, then I, you know, don't style yourself as a, as, a, as a thinker who's got like ideas that they really care about and want to put across, if, if that's not what you're doing. Let's talk a little bit about skepticism. You already alluded to the fact that you aren't a global skeptic. You don't sort of question absolutely everything in terms of the existence of truth, say. But how do you understand skepticism and where do you see the limits? Because a lot of people say that radical skepticism is what leads people to subscribe to, say, conspiracy theories, a kind of extreme questioning of the status quo. How do you see the balance between a healthy kind of skepticism and an extreme skepticism? Well, I think like half-baked skepticism leads to this kind of conclusion, because you question everything but never actually look for an answer on any of those things. You kind of question this and question that and question that, and you're left in this kind of pit of agnosticism about everything where you're completely vulnerable to believe anything that's put convincingly in front of you. I think you need to sort of focus on a particular area that you're interested in at the time and are skeptical of and look for the answer. This is, again, the Cartesian project. A lot of people style Descartes as a, as a skeptic. And he was methodologically, but he wasn't a skeptic in the way that people often paint him out to be. He didn't, like, not think that we can ground our epistemology. He thought that we could. His only question was, but well, how do we do that? And so it's a methodological tool that he uses. He says, well, let's throw it all out. Let's pretend it's false and see if we can prove it true again. And he thinks he can do that. He thinks he, he regains what he loses um, by, by finding ways to ground truth. And this is the kind of skepticism that I think we should be promoting. And again, at a more surface level of not so much question everything because you can't know if it's true, but there are certain things that we, we do seem reasonable in believing are true. But let's see if we can trace the line of thought and make sure we're confident in those beliefs. But of course, it can only go down to a certain level. 
but it depends kind of what the motive is here. Is the motive getting at philosophical truth, or is the motive trying to convince people to stop eating animal products or something? Because in the second case, it's a lot easier to just take some axiomatic thought that someone has, or maybe something that's derived from an axiom a bit higher up, something like you know, suffering is bad, and then have some skepticism about factory farming. You know, is this causing more suffering than you think it is? is do, do animals suffer in a way that is morally significant? And then you try to find the answers, and you have this line of thought which justifies veganism or something close to it. But of course, you could still just question the axiom that that whole precipice is built upon, but then you're getting into a kind of global skepticism, which is not something I shy away from. I'm happy to do it. But as Hume famously talks about induction, similar to Descartes, people misunderstand him. They think that Hume said, induction is false, or something like this. He didn't. He said, of course induction is true. Of, of course induction is an accurate depiction of the world. It's just that we've got absolutely no way of justifying it. This is the kind of thing I'm talking about. When I say I'm not a global skeptic, it's not that I don't question these things. It's not that I'm not interested in the question of, are there certain things that we just have no justification for? It's that I, I do that, but the beliefs that I'm questioning are sometimes in the human spirit, like, well, of course this is true, but I'm interested in finding out whether we can epistemically warrant that, that belief. And what happens if we, if we find out that we don't have justification for our beliefs, as in the case of induction? Hume's solution was, well, we just have to carry on philosophy. You know, it has its limits. We then go on and lead our lives. Do you find that answer satisfying, or does it leave a bit of an air of futility of the exercise? Well, we did this. We found that there's no ground, but nothing changes. Well, you know, Hume doesn't just say, well, we, we kind of just have to believe in induction in the sense of, well, we better do that because if we don't, we're going to run into problems. But no, we have to. Like, it's impossible to doubt it. If you doubted induction to the extent that would be reasonably justifiable if Hume is correct, I'd have, if I wanted to con continue having this conversation with you, I have no more reason to you know, try to vibrate my, my vocal cords than I do to pour a bottle of water over my head and think it'll have the same result. There's just that humans just do. Hume describes it as custom. He says that this is like the answer, but it's not an answer to the, it's, it's an answer to the skeptical doubts as he frames it in the, in the inquiry. But it's not the kind of answer that, that justifies induction or, or solves the problem. It's an answer of the kind, well, what do we do given this? It's the kind of answer that's given at the end of Ecclesiastes, when you have this list of nihilistic ramblings, and the conclusion of the matter is, fear God and follow his commandments. That's not an answer to nihilism in, in the sense of, of showing why it's false or showing if it's justified or not. It's a practical answer to what do we do given this sorry state of affairs. And given the sorry state of affairs of not being able to justify induction, it doesn't actually matter in terms of our beliefs. Because it's not like, well, maybe we should just withhold belief in it. It's like, good luck. You're not going to be able to do that. And you're, you're left in a fairly dissatisfactory state philosophically that you can't justify it. But practically, it makes no difference, because you're never going to be able to abandon that belief. So Hume famously kind of argued that you know, reason has its limits when it comes to motivating moral behavior. How do you see that applying to the case of vegetarianism? Is reason really not strong enough to convince people of moving away from a meat-eating diet? Do the passions have to get involved more, the emotions? How did, how did you change your view on this? I'm becoming increasingly skeptical of the distinction between thinking and feeling. 
um, at least in most scenarios, what, what's being styled as thinking is actually a form of feeling or belongs in the category of emotive expression, kind of like emotivism about ethics, but emotivism about even philosophy in, in general, even non-emotive uh, statements, such that when we say, well, we, we have a reasonable belief that we should be vegan or something like this, but must it be the slave of the passions? Must there be some other motivating factor that you kind of tack onto it? Mm -hmm. But it's possible that what we're describing as reason is actually reason in the sense of motivation, like the reason to get out of bed or the reason that I go vegan or something like this. I mean, for me, I read Animal Liberation by Peter Singer, and I'm not very impressed by his meta-ethics, but I was very impressed with his highlighting of ethical inconsistencies. I'm very grateful to Peter Singer for the, the contribution he's made to the alleviation of the suffering of animals, but I don't think he's particularly impressive on the philosophy. I think he was just like the only guy that was doing it. it it's, it's more the fact that he put it on the table that I think makes him such a unique and, and useful and wonderful philosopher rather than the actual content of the belief. Um, as I say, I think his metaethical view doesn't Work. I, I kind of can't make heads or tails of it. In fact, what are you? What are you um, unconvinced by? What what aspect of Singer's metaethics specifically? You find when he the, the the biggest problem for objectifying utilitarianism is going from the intuitive and seemingly self-evident notion that a person's pleasure is good for them. It depends how exactly what you mean by good, but at least it's it's enjoyed by them or is beneficial to them. Something of this sort. Utilitarianism requires that because my pleasure is good to me, I'm somehow committed to the view that pleasure is good in general, regardless of who it's attached to. Singer quite specifically says, well, the fact that my pleasure is good for me is essentially some kind of demonstration that pleasure is good. I just think that's a, that's a, that's a jump. This is where the, the is-ought is smuggled in, as it must be somewhere. And people, anybody who claims to objectify ethics generally is, is smuggling it in. Some people do it better than worse. Sam Harris is an example of somebody who just it, it makes a comic attempt at trying to, to get away from Hume's doomed is-ought notion, as Sam Harris describes it, but very clearly smuggles it in, um, smuggles in this jump, in other words. Uh, this is the problem philosophy. of getting normativity from simply looking at the facts. Yeah, which, of, of course, is famously attributed as a thought to, to David Hume. Um, but, I, I mean, to answer your question, I, I, I read Peter Singer, and as I say, I'm unimpressed by his meta-ethics, but you have, you're confronted here with, with this reality of animal suffering, and of course I'm kind of motivated by reason in a sense. There's like a, a, a consistency case to be made. I've got like a descriptive inconsistency with how I view dogs versus pigs or something like this, but... Of course, the thing that finally causes someone to change is going to be something that's that's more motivational, that belongs more in the emotive framework. But like, if you're like an ethical emotivist, then the difference between ethical reasoning and the motivation for ethical action just become the same thing, because ethics is itself an expression of emotion. And so it doesn't make sense to talk about non-motivating ethical claims, which is why, of course, David Hume is thought to preempt non-cognitivism and emotivism, because he accepts this premise that moral claims are intrinsically motivating. Are you saying that it doesn't make sense to say that I'm rationally convinced that I should do X, but because I'm not emotionally invested in it, that's what explains my kind of lack of action on the basis of my sort of having arrived at a conclusion 
just by following a kind of argument. Mm. It's it's possible that people are actually not quite in tune with their own thoughts or desires. They'll they'll kind of think that they desire something, but their actions will betray them. Um, so there's a complication by the fact that people aren't always actually don't don't have direct access to their to their deepest motivations and aren't always aware of, of all the factors in play. But it's a it's a big ethical problem. How do we how do we deal with somebody who is convinced rationally of an ethical position but not motivated to act in accordance with it? Mm. And of course, there are just a few different ways to explain this. One is to say, well, they're just not convinced, ethically speaking, because to be ethically convinced of something is to be motivated to do it. That's what ethics essentially is. What is it that makes ethics different from propositional thinking? What is the ought and the is distinction? What is the difference? It must be that the ought has some normative force. It has something, uh, some kind of call to action embedded into its nature, mm. such that if you don't have that call to action, if you don't have that normative force in the belief, you, you just don't have the ethical belief. You just kind of claim that you do or think that you do, but misunderstand the position that the other person's actually trying to get you to become convinced of. So do, that's, that's do, you think that's, do you think that's likely? I mean, how would we expect, explain, um, say, feeling guilty for failing to live up to a moral standard? So say, I have, I know that I, you know, I should stop eating meat, and yet I kind of fail to do so. And it's not like I, I think that's fine. I think that there's something I've done wrong here. And I can sure, but feel bad about it. If, if you feel bad about it, that is the motivation to act in accordance with it. The motivation won't necessarily be strong enough to actually make you act in accordance with it. But the motivation is still there. It's just too weak to actually overcome maybe inhibitions or maybe to overcome other motivating factors that are at play, like the motivation that you have to towards convenience or taste pleasure or something like this. And it could just be a fact that one motivation is stronger than the other, but the motivation is still there. So this wouldn't be a case of somebody who says, if, if somebody says to me, well, I'm convinced of the vegan position, but you know, I'm not motivated to act in accordance with it, but I just feel so bad when I, when I, when I eat meat. It's like, well, actually, there is some motivation in there then. It's just that the motivation isn't strong enough to compel your action. So what do you think is the best way, as it were, to not just convince people of why it's morally problematic to eat animals or consume other animal products, but to actually change their behavior? Is it going to be through reasons? Is it going to be through someone reading a, a philosophy book? Or is it going to be something else that happens well, to them? Or it was for me, but I mean... To, it, it's a rather boring answer to any question, but like it depends, right? It depends on the person. If so, so myself, like I kind of pride myself on on consistency and having a worldview that I can present and defend and this kind of thing. It's like my job to talk about philosophy and arguments and stuff. And so, the motivating factor that exists within me is a motivation towards things like consistency and coherency of my worldview and honesty and this kind of thing. And so when I read just a, a reasonable case, as it were, just, just Peter Singer's Animal Liberation, and I think to myself, well, this is quite compelling. And maybe I don't have a, a motivational force in terms of feeling sorry for animals and, and wanting to, to save them because I just are oh, the poor animals. But maybe I've got this motivating force towards uh, like consistency, philosophical consistency, and that's the motivation mm. that, that means that for me, for a person like me, just reading the book is enough to make me want to go vegan because I have this desire towards consistency. So in some ways, quite a selfish kind of drive here. You yes. just want to 
not fall into cognitive dissonance. As it, as it kind of is with, I mean, famously, a lot of people deny the existence of altruism altogether, and that's the kind of line of thought I think you're, you're getting at there, and it, it may well be true. But of course, some people dem demonstrably will be able to kind of read an argument that they find compelling, but as you say, they're just not motivated to act. And so for such people, the argument would be different. That maybe you don't even make an argument. Maybe you give them an experience. Maybe you take them to a factory farm or show them footage or something like this. It's much the same as religious experience, actually. Mm. It, it's it's a good example because I think this is just how all beliefs are formed. In in essence, um, there's going to be some kind of motivational aspect. This is why I say I, I'm suspicious of the distinction between thinking and feeling because I think there's thinking lurking at, at the bottom there. Um, at the bottom there somewhere. Religion is a great example. I've never met a person who took on religious faith purely because they read a syllogism somewhere. Hmm. They're looking in a book and they see an argument and they think, oh, that's convincing, and immediately you know, drop to their knees and accept the existence of Almighty God. It's, it's so much more experiential. I mean, the only example I can think of off the top of my head is Anthony Flew, who claims that he just kind of looked at the biological data, became convinced that free will existed also, and then thought, oh, well, God must exist. But I feel as though there was more going on there. Um, I, I was told by Andrew Copson, uh, who is a, a humanist in the, in the UK, who knew Anthony Flew, that before he died, he seemed to kind of, seemed to change. He seemed to be a different person to who he was before. And, and Copson was like disappointed because he, he liked the atheist Anthony Flew, because he's an atheist still. But he said, it wasn't just like you've got this guy who read an argument and just thought, okay, fair enough. It's like he changed as a person. I think there's usually something so much deeper and more experiential going on when it comes to the formation of beliefs. So even, even for the person who says, no, 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 that's not me. I know most people are convinced by experience, but I'm convinced by reason alone. I think there's still a motivating factor to do with some kind of pleasurable emotive state coming about as the result of being able to say that you're consistent or being consistent. You just enjoy consistency and, and, and honesty and coherence. It's still, that's still feeling, that's still a motivational aspect that undercut, uh, undermines, no, still wrong, undergirds, let's say, all of this reasonable thinking. You, you brought up this kind of parallel between religious faith and, and vegetarianism or veganism. I was going to ask you about how you see the connection between philosophical theism, which relies on thinking about arguments for the existence of God, and then religion as we see it for the most part sort of practice, which is not really based on arguments at all. So if we're going to draw this parallel with veganism, are we going to have to create institutions that somehow compare to religion in order to get more people on board if arguments alone are not really going to do it? Well, people already caricature many ideologies as doing this. They'll tell you veganism is a new religion, which I, I really hate when people get caught up in the pedantry of the exact words that are being used. When someone says veganism is a religion, it's very easy for me to say, that's not what a religion is. There's a strict definition, but it's like, look, I know what they're driving at. Okay, mm -hmm. like, sure, I could be a pedant and, and quibble with the terms, but I know what they're getting Some at. Some metaphor of sorts. Yeah, yeah. And, and really I think they're getting at something like the lurking presence of dogma, which is the thing that makes religion bad. Religion bad because dogma and a lot of like the, the vegan community will rely on, on dogma. And there can be good dogmas and bad dogmas, but it's still dogma if it's just a principle that's just believed without question. And there'll be a lot of vegans in the world who think, I won't eat animal products. And that's the principle. For me, it's like reducing animal suffering as much as I can. But for some people, you'll say, well, what if this animal doesn't suffer? Is it okay to you know, eat their products? And they'll still just say, no, no, it's still wrong. And, and they won't really be able to give you a convincing reason why. 
And that to me seems like a red flag for dogma. And so when someone says veganism is a religion, I think they're driving at a tendency towards this kind of thing. But this exists in any ideological movement or any cause, there, there will be dogmatic elements because not everybody has the time to constantly be pulling things down to the first principles. They have to rely on some kind of dogma. Um, and so we see this naturally happen. We, we see people start to kind of engage in, say, like a vegan lifestyle. You get like a vegan festivals and stuff where, sure, you have speakers and they're trying to engage and give people arguments, but that's only half the reason it exists. It exists for the sake of community. People like getting together and, mm -hmm. and sort of reaffirming the fact that we're all kind of living this life. And it, it's kind of a validating experience to know that this, this motivation you have to live in a particular way isn't unique to you. And so it just, it just happens naturally. I don't think we necessarily kind of need to, to do it. But you, you'll see in any movement people say things like, yeah, we need to do this. We need to make sure we're fostering a community. We need to be strong together. We need to have protests and show our solidarity and this, this kind of thing. It's like, yeah, I, I, just, I just think it, it does happen naturally. And I think it's such a boring conversation when somebody tries to say veganism is a religion or something like this. I, I think there's just so much confusion in the terms going on there. It's like, I know what you're driving at, and, and what it is that you're driving at is probably true, but for that, that's the, the reason why, the, the fact that that is kind of accurate is why I wouldn't be able to say that religion is bad or veganism is bad. It's like, Sure, the dogmatic elements of these things are probably we could do without them, but this exists everywhere. And so to say religion is bad is, is it would be a bit strange. So I'm, I'm happy to accept that it has elements that are also within religion, but I'd say that both are kind of, mm. okay, saying religion is bad is like saying politics is bad. Sure, yeah, but what does that mean? Doesn't get you very far. Right. You mentioned very briefly there the potential of like engineering animals in some way that they wouldn't feel suffering. Is that... Is that just a kind of philosophical thought experiment, or is that uh, something that's on the table? And what do you make of that? Well, I mean, the closest real-life instantiation of this is something like uh, lab-grown meat, as people like to call it. Is this an animal? Uh, not really. I mean, it kind of has the same biological data in the in the in the meat, which is what makes it so strange and also promising. Uh, but I, I'm I'm fine with this. If there's no suffering involved, I just kind of don't see a problem might be a little more complicated with human beings. Uh, there might be instances where even when there's no suffering, there's still something wrong. And I've, I've tried to kind of draw out that distinction, why we can justifiably say that about humans, but not non-humans. I made a video not long ago, which upset quite a lot of, well, I say quite a lot of vegans, a, a loud minority of, of my vegan audience, when I said that animals, non-humans, probably don't have a right to life in the same way that, that humans do. I think there are kind of meaningful distinctions to be made. but. With, in the animal context, I think if there's no suffering, there's kind of no problem. So if there was some way to engineer these beings that don't suffer, I kind of think that suffering, or at least sentience, that is uh, an apprehension of desirable and undesirable states of experience, is, is a prerequisite for, 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 certainly for moral worth, but also for maybe consciousness and certainly conscious action. In order to do something, you need to be sort of motivated to get to a point that you're not at right now. You need to say, well, I'm going to do something because doing this will get me to a desirable state that I'm not at right now. And so if you don't have some conception of suffering, which broadly defined is like an experience that is not wanted when experienced, there's no conscious action. And so you're, you're talking about a rock, you're talking about a plant. And in that case, yeah, do, do what you like with it. 
You mentioned earlier that you like to be consistent in your views uh, and kind of make them coherent. What's an area in which you worry that you're in some kind of cognitive dissonance and are you able to sort of work on that to make your beliefs a bit more coherent? It's a great question and I think it's going to be a result of sort of partial knowledge or confidence. So there, there might be areas that I, I know a bit about, maybe even more than average because I'm into philosophy, but don't know enough about to, to recognize that I've got some inconsistencies brewing. Um, it could be that I'm inconsistent with my views towards non-human animals and unborn fetuses, for example, that there might, I, I might be just completely wrong on the question of abortion. Um, I might be wrong on questions of like economics. Um, it could be that like the real critique of the, the real critique that I'm driving at when I talk about animal exploitation is not so much speciesism or something like that, but something more like capitalism, um, such that by advocating for like individual responsibility and change at the level of the consumer, I'm getting it completely and exactly wrong because this is exactly what these companies want us to do, to divert the blame from them towards each other. That could be very wrong. And recently I've been exploring this idea, thinking, like, can, is it really the best response to the problem of factory farming? Hey, let's just stop paying for this to happen. Well, maybe it's useful to do that, but that might not be, like, the answer. That's not like, this is what we need to do to solve the problem. Uh, it might be a more, let's say, economic, uh, economically informed position. I, those are two examples of places where I think there's, there's great potential for a lot of cognitive dissonance. But I hope, for, I, I hope that that can be remedied by further reflection and conversations with intelligent people who can show me where I'm going wrong. Um, of course, it's famously difficult to recognize your own cognitive bias. And when you do, it usually only lasts for maybe like a few months or something because you'll eventually change your behaviors because of that motivating factor. So it's, it's, it's kind of hard to point to an example where I think I'm being cognitively dissonant here. But those are two plausible areas, let's say. Alex O'Connor, thank you very much. Anytime. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion.